Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 1 Kings, chapters 3 and 4. If you could wish for anything in the world, what would it be? On September 2005, the reality TV show featuring contemporary Christian musician Amy Grant, titled Three Wishes, premiered. In each heartwarming episode, Amy Grant went around small towns across America, choosing three people, asking that very question. If you had one wish in the world and could ask for absolutely anything, what would it be? And the producers made the wishes come true, just like that. However, after 10 episodes within just three months, the show was canceled due to disappointing poor ratings. Not only did the show have low impact on the viewers, with such low ratings, the producers of the show probably could not keep up with granting huge wishes because, well, at the end of the day, money was an issue. But what if your biggest wish could really come true? And what if the person asking what you wanted had infinite resources? This is exactly the opportunity that God gave King Solomon in today's passage. Ask, what should I give you? We're continuing our study through First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I have said, the kings is about the short-lived glory of the United Kingdom of Israel and her eventual division and downfall and exile. But the message of the kings is clear. Kings fail and kingdoms fall. But the word of the Lord remains. God keeps his covenant promise to his people. God will establish the throne of David's offspring forever. And so in chapter 1, we saw who God establishes as the next king. And in chapter 2, we saw how God establishes the king's reign. And in today's passage, in chapters 3 and 4, we'll see how God blesses the king's kingdom. As mentioned, the first section of the kings, chapters 1 through 11, is about King Solomon's reign. But the question for us is, is there more to the story in the kings? Beyond Solomon's reign, our passage portrays and foreshadows for us so beautifully the kingdom of a greater king, the true promised Messiah king, doesn't it? Solomon's historical kingship whispers and echoes his coming kingdom. Nevertheless, there are so many lessons we can learn from Solomon in these chapters. And so from 1 Kings 3 and 4, I want to share with you four ways God blesses the king and how his kingship impacts us. Four ways God blesses the king and how his kingship impacts us. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, the king's wisdom from verses 1 through 15. Point number two, the king's justice from verses 16 through 28. Point number three, the king's governance from chapter 4, verse 1 through 24a, first part of 24. And finally, point number four, the king's peace, 24b to the end of the chapter, verse 34. The king's wisdom, the king's justice, the king's governance, and the king's peace. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you anew 
of God's gracious love for you in whom you can trust. Although our love for him is never perfect, his love for us is always and never failing. His love for us is measureless and infinite. And I pray that you would also be encouraged in knowing that our sovereign king reigns today, that he is in control, that you have no reason to fear. Guests and visitors, thank you so much for joining us for our weekly Sunday gathering. As Jeremy said, we have been praying for you. We pray that God would lead you here to hear his word today. Scripture says in Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So friend, if you are here and you lack faith or don't have faith, listen to these words. These words are meant to give you and build your faith. So we pray through this word you will come to find comfort and forgiveness and peace and life in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? So let's turn now to his word found on page 282 of the Blue Bibles around you. And I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open. If you are hungry for his word, open your Bibles and reference it often as I read and preach so you know this is God's word for you, for today, for now, to grow you in love and knowledge of him. First Kings chapter 3 and 4. We're just going to go right into the sermon. How does God bless the king? Point number one, God blesses the king with wisdom from verses 1 through 15. But look at verses 1 through 4 for now. It says this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Now up to this point, we know with certainty it is God who has established King Solomon on the throne by keeping his word promised to David as according to 1 Chronicles 22, 7-10 and by prophet Nathan remembering the word of the Lord in 1 Kings 1, 13 and by King David's exhortation to his son to keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses as according to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But if we're honest, we are a bit skeptical of Solomon because we know that soon he will be led astray from obeying God's word, which will lead to the division of the kingdom of Israel and its consequential downfall. Well, these verses confirm some of the earlier warning signs why Solomon remains to us in the language of Gen Z's so sus, so suspect. Although Solomon's curious behavior is not specifically reprimanded by the author of the Kings, we the readers can't help but to question the curious actions taken by King Solomon in these verses. For example, in verse 1, we are told Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. So naturally, our alarm bells go off when we hear Pharaoh or Egypt mentioned because we know that in Israel's history, the Jews had been enslaved by the Egyptians for nearly 400 years. We know the great exodus 
that had to take place under the leadership of Moses. And the ten plagues and the crossing into the Red Sea and the wilderness wanderings all throughout the Pentateuch. Pharaoh and Egypt were described as wicked oppressors of the Jews. Previously, God had cautioned Israel about returning to or associating with Egypt. Not only that, God's people were warned, weren't they, by God to not intermarry with daughters of pagan nations as according to Exodus 34, 15, 16, Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4, and Joshua 23, 12. Yet we see from the outset of Solomon's kingship, Solomon strikes an alliance and marries an Egyptian of all people. Now be sure to keep in mind what the Bible was condemning in the Old Testament was not interracial marriage, but marriage to an unbeliever, which is forbidden for Christians all throughout the scriptures. You can reference 2 Corinthians 6.14 for that. And to double down on Solomon's love interest in foreign women, we are cued in later in 1 Kings 11, 42 and 43, and 1 Kings 14, 21, that this Egyptian princess was not Solomon's first wife because she is not the mother of Rehoboam, uh, whose mother was an Ammonite who would succeed Solomon's reign. But before we throw stones at Solomon already in these early verses, we must acknowledge along with some commentators that there is nothing explicitly condemning or negative of Solomon by the author specifically of the kings regarding this marriage at this point in these verses. After all, it's been several hundreds of years since Israel had been enslaved to the Egyptians, at least 400 years and possibly as much as 600 years. If anything, perhaps it seems more likely the author could have been pointing us to the progress made between the interpolitical relationship between Israel and Egypt. Just think about that. A once enslaved nation, Israel, developing and growing and prospering so much to the point the enemy superpower nation, Egypt, could not deny their growth and dominance. That a marriage alliance would be formed, a mutual political partnership. This is an incredible thing if you think about it. In addition, verse 1 clearly says, Solomon took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Could this possibly mean she abandoned her pagan worship perhaps and began to worship Yahweh, the one true God? You see, not all is negative as intended by the author in these verses. Well, what makes these verses more complex is verse 3. Because it says, in all this, in all this, Verses 1 and 2, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Okay, so the author of the Kings doesn't tell us explicitly at least what Solomon did by marrying Pharaoh's daughter was sinful against God, since the author says Solomon loved the Lord. We just can't take these words lightly or casually, you see. As one commentator says, we should appreciate what a striking statement this is. It is not said in so many words of any other individual in Israel's history. That is not to say, of course, that Solomon was the first man to have loved God, but he is the first person of whom the Bible writers have chosen to make this simple but profound statement. He, Solomon, loved the Lord. Of all the things that could have been said about Solomon, this is the testimony placed at the beginning of the history of Solomon's reign. Furthermore, we are told Solomon's love for the Lord was not merely superficial. For Solomon loved the Lord 
What that meant for him was walking in the statutes of David, his father. Those were the words of his dying father's wishes. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Hence, brothers and sisters, we can be certain that Solomon's love for the Lord was genuine, at least for now. Just consider Solomon's attitude toward God in his worship. It says at the end of verse 4, Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar at Gibeon, the great high place. Think about it, the sheer number of offerings, a thousand cattle, and the attention to the highest place where the offerings were presented, just reeks of Solomon's lavish love for God. Although, of course, it may be misguided. Goodness, so many lessons and applications we can draw from that about Solomon's genuine, lavish, but misguided love. We're going to talk about it more a little bit later. But, well, maybe just a quick word on that. Solomon's genuine, lavish, but misguided love. A reminder, brothers and sisters, that our love can be sincere and genuine, but that it can be totally, entirely off. I'm getting ahead of myself because the text hasn't gone there yet, so let's keep going. All right, well, directly following the phrase, Solomon loved the Lord, another curious phrase follows. Solomon loved the Lord only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Solomon loved the Lord and walked in his ways only or except he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. You'll notice three times the words high places are mentioned in the first four verses of our passage. And we know in Hebrew scripture, repetition is meant to draw our attention, draw our focus to those words. Well, another alarm bell goes off in our minds because we know that high places generally have a negative connotation in Israel's history. In Numbers 33, 52, and in Deuteronomy 12, 2 and 3, the Lord commands Israel to demolish the high places where pagan nations engage in their pagan idolatrous religious practices. We don't know how or when or by whom high places came to be a part of Israel's life at this point. And we know that it was not a problem at first. Verse 2 seems to indicate the reason people were sacrificing at the high places was because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. But what we do know is that soon when the temple of God, which will be built in Jerusalem by Solomon, is built, then Jerusalem would become the centralized location for worshiping Yahweh. But again, I think the author is clear, it had not been built yet. And although the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was mainly where God's people were to make sacrifices. In the Old Testament, we do see that before the temple was built, there were exceptions. There were no explicit commands given otherwise which prohibited sacrifices elsewhere. So we see in these verses, Solomon's love is complex. Solomon's worship is complex, which may perhaps be the reason why it necessitated the event of the next verses. Solomon needed wisdom. He was a little confused about his love. He was a little confused about his worship. Solomon needed wisdom. So we read in verse 5 through 10, God visits Solomon in a dream and offers one billion dollar question. Ask, what should I give you in verse 5? 
And Solomon's request is pleasing to God as according to verse 10. Solomon recognizes that the establishment of his reign is secured by God's covenant promise with his father David as according to verse 6. And Solomon rightly postures himself with humility in verse 7. He says, although I am but a child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Figuratively speaking, Solomon is confessing of his inability to lead Israel by his own power. Solomon is honestly and humbly aware of the great task at hand in verse 8. And he needs to continue on in the steps of his father to lead God's covenant people. And so Solomon asks God for nothing else but an understanding mind in verse 9. That's so good, isn't it? In Hebrew, the expression for an understanding mind is much richer. It means literally a hearing or a listening heart. Solomon was acknowledging that what he needed most, more than anything else, was to be able to listen to the Word of God. Solomon understood that he needed to hear deeply as a hearing heart will listen thoroughly as the entire being is shaped by what is heard. Faith comes by hearing. Solomon's request for an obedient, listening heart is based on his desire to administer justice in Israel, which is the second part of verse 9, which says, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Now, we're going to see Solomon's discernment in the way he deals justice in the next point. But I simply right here want to drive the point of these verses so we can move on. Solomon's love is complicated. Solomon's worship of God is complicated. Solomon's entire kingship is confusing. And Solomon's request for discernment is a bit complicating also. He asks for a listening heart, an obedient heart, and God is pleased to grant it. Look at verse 10 through 13 real quick. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Wow. That's right. But again, the million-dollar question, the lingering question, is Solomon the obedient king? How could Solomon be granted such incomparable gift from God, the most wisest king to ever live, the richest and the most honorable king who has no competition whatsoever? Yet how, how could Solomon's reign become so pivotal in Israel's eventual division, downfall, and decimation? It's a question for us to ponder. I think Pastor Jacob was right when he reminded us on Wednesday night at Sermon Review that when we try to understand the Bible in the perspective of human beings, the story just doesn't make sense. When we see the main character of the kings through the lens of Solomon, things get real complicating. Things get really, really messy, and it's hard for us to understand what in the world is going on. You see, sinful human beings like you and me are messy, aren't we? Our loves aren't pure. Our motives aren't pure. Our worship at times isn't true. We can genuinely love someone one minute and the next minute our minds wander off to other loves, doesn't it, often? 
We can be worshiping God with tears in our eyes in the car to that fire worship song. Then the next minute someone cuts us off and we are cursing that person to their graves. Not out loudly maybe, but in our hearts and our minds. Simply in this context, Solomon is not the main character of the kings. He is part of it. He is covered in the first 11 chapters of the book. But you know who is. It's God. It's Yahweh. The Bible in its entirety from Old Testament to New Testament, the 39 books of the Old and 27 books of the New is His story. The whole of the scriptures are all telling one redemption story of God saving and reconciling His rebellious people, that's you and me, to Himself through the promised Messiah King, Jesus. The spoiler is always the same, but it's always so amazing, isn't it? Listen, Solomon was a complicated king with a complicated past, with complicated loves, yet God loved him from the start. God called him Jedediah, beloved of God. And God granted Solomon even more abundantly than what he could ask or think according to the power at work in Solomon. That's the truth of who God is. Hallelujah. Isn't this so true of God? To us, to you and me, Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death and eternal judgment in hell. Yet He grants us forgiveness and redemption. He grants us repentance and faith, abundant life now and eternal life with Him forevermore because of the finished work of Christ. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, the King's is the historical record and the theological teachings of God's faithfulness to keep His word despite human failures. The King's is not about Solomon. It is about God. It's about God's grace and mercy. That has always been the same. As in verse 14, God says to Solomon, If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Brothers and sisters, as we see through the life of David, and as we see through Solomon's confusing character, the Christian life does not require perfection, but perseverance. The Christian life does not require perfection, but perseverance. Not sinlessness, but a single-heartedness on him. Not sinlessness, brothers and sisters, but a single-heartedness on him. Upon Solomon's encounter with God, we see an incredible response in verse 15. Then he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Circle that verse. It's going to be important later. Solomon worships God rightly, not according to what he thinks is the most glorious worship in the highest place possible, offering thousand cattle at the highest place. With his lavish sacrifices, he goes to Jerusalem before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offers burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord and makes a feast for all his servants. Whew. That's God's wisdom at work. When we worship God rightly, according to his word, to sacrifice unto God for the blessing of others. Brothers and sisters, we should learn from these verses of Solomon's desire for wisdom how God's wisdom sets us aright in right worship and relationship to Him and to others. We should be reminded like God gave Solomon, He gives to His children wisdom without measure. 
Morgan read it for us in our scripture reading. James chapter 1 verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, if any of you are confused, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. You don't have to be a king to ask God's wisdom. God granting of his wisdom is given to us through the king of kings. Let me just double click here. We should learn from Solomon, although our loves are questionable at times and complex at times, God's love for his own is unhindered and undivided, unlike our loves. Let me say that again. God's love for you is unhindered and undivided, unlike our loves. God's love is not based on our good works. It's not based on our response to him. God's love for you is based on who he is. We love because he first loved us. God's love for you has never changed. From the beginning of time, before you are even born, from eternity past, his love extends to you forever. Let's move on to the second point. How does God bless the king and how do we get blessed through the king? Point number two, God blesses the king with justice. Verses 16 through 28. Verse 16 through 27 entails a very famous story of how Solomon, having received the gift of wisdom from God, exercises wisdom and establishes himself as a great king and a wise king all throughout Israel. Look at verse 28. It says this, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now that's interesting. How does Solomon's exercise of wisdom and discernment relate to justice? And that question serves us as the main lesson from these verses, I believe. You recall this famous account, don't you? Two prostitutes come before Solomon, asking him to act as judge between them. Now, why there were two prostitutes living together in Israel among God's people is a topic of another conversation for another time, but it gives us a clue of Israel's spiritual climate. Anyways, two women had given birth to two children, one woman's child died in the night because one woman accidentally rolled on him and suffocated him. It was an accidental tragedy. Well, she decides to do a little switch up, replace her own dead baby with the other baby from the other prostitute while she was sleeping. But when the other prostitute wakes up, she immediately recognizes the dead baby in her arms is not her child. And the prostitute who stole the baby denies it. No, this is my baby. And so they come before the king. And the king says, bring me a sword. And he commands, divide the living child in two. So the mother can each have half of a child. Well, the fake mother says, all right, go ahead, let's do that. And the real mother says, no, give the living child to the other mother. At which point Solomon says, gotcha. Right? The fake mother was exposed. The baby will not be divided. Give the living child to the real mom, for she is the real Mother. That's verses 16 through 27 in summary. And that's it. Perhaps it wasn't just recorded, but I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to understand. There is nothing that clues us in in how justice was served, especially to the fake mother. No death sentence for stealing another mom's baby. No consequences for agreeing to murder an innocent baby and her mother. Where is the justice? How are these verses teaching us about God's justice? Why then does the author of the kings determine in verse 28 
that all of Israel stood in awe of Solomon and perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. It's kind of confusing. What's going on? Well, Josh Lewis sent me some helpful insight from John Piper's book, Come Lord Jesus, and let me quote you this section, which was so helpful. What was Solomon looking for at this judgment day? He was not looking for any deeds that would create or cause motherhood. He was looking for deeds that would confirm motherhood. As the woman stood before him, the reality of motherhood was already established. This was not in doubt. The judgment did not create motherhood, nor could any act done by either woman create the motherhood. As such, on the day when Christians are judged, God is not looking for deeds that purchased our pardon in His judgment hall. He is looking for deeds that proved we were already enjoying our pardon. The purchase of our pardon was the blood of Jesus, sufficient once and for all to cover all of our sins and the means by which we own it is faith alone, faith alone, close quote. And so even through this illustration of Solomon's exercise of judgment, God continues to tell his story, doesn't he? How the judgment and justice of the king is in the confirmation of what is already is through the work of Jesus, the Son. Listen, the Son confirms the truth of what is. The Son confirms the truth of what is. That is the king's justice. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, how are you coming before the king who judges wisely and executes justice with perfect wisdom? I want to ask you the question, is your soul secure and confident before him? A true child of God need not to be bothered by false accusations. A true child of God need not to be torn by unjust allegations. A true child of God need not to fear the king's judgment. Why? Because the king will rightly discern his own. Amen? You can come to him and he can execute justice upon those who are clearly in the wrong. He will stand by your side. He will plead your cause. He will execute judgment for you. You will be brought out into the light. You will look upon his vindication. You will stand on firm ground because he alone is the king of true justice. How does God bless the king? Point number three, the king's governance. This is from chapter 4, verse 1 through the first part of verse 24. As King Solomon continues to exercise great godly wisdom given by God in leading God's people, the United Kingdom of Israel experiences prosperity and growth like no other time before in Israel's history. And as the kingdom of Israel expands, Solomon wisely governs and structures and orders his kingdom with trustworthy officers who would help lead and protect the kingdom. So if you look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4, it recalls familiar names who have been helpful and loyal to Solomon in his ascent to the throne. And they are rewarded with the titles of the most prominent of the kingdom offices, nine offices, and those who held them are named in those verses. Verses 7 through 19, because of Israel's size and diversity and volatile nature, it was pretty much a, a young nation that was growing very fast, Solomon could not govern it, much less fulfill his later ambitious goals without an extensive administrative system. Hence, he names 12 district governors who would be responsible for raising the revenue necessary for sustaining the central government. 
And so one commentator notes, the purpose of these seemingly unimportant lists is for the reader to marvel at the complexity of a kingdom requiring such a sophisticated system. The list is meant to provide the reader with a sense of reality. This utopia was no never-never land. It wasn't some fake place. It involved real place and real geography. It also involved a real God who provided a wise leader for the covenant nation. Verses 20 through 28 tells us, as the kingdom grew and expanded during Solomon's era, such an impressive government required vast resources to continue operations. Uh, it is estimated by historians that the number of persons Solomon sustained vary from 14,000 to 32,000 people, coupled with military expenditures. Simply, the money required to maintain the central government was extraordinary, which was not abnormal to run a government of such size. Hence, we're told taxes were levied from each other region. That's verse 21 through 23. Look at verse 21. Tributes and services were brought from lands from all over, from Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt all the days of Solomon's life. Brothers and sisters, only prosperity keeps people from resenting large government and new taxes. What we see here in these verses was that food was plentiful, the people were in good spirits, Solomon was gaining both divine and popular favor. And what we get to see, what we get to foretaste, is slowly Israel had become a global superpower, uniting all the known nearing nations. What in the world is going on? What does this all mean? Could Solomon be that promised heir, perhaps, who was establishing a forever legacy? That is the lingering question. What we see is that under King Solomon's reign, the land was governed with order and prosperity. And verse 20 summarizes life under Solomon's wise governance. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. You see, Solomon, through God-given ability, manages to rule all the territory God had promised to Abraham. The land that Moses desired, the land that Joshua conquered and David subdued, now was laying in his hands the man of unsurpassed wisdom. Again, the question lingers in our minds, could it be that God's covenant to Abraham, Moses, and David was finally being fulfilled in Solomon? Was Solomon the true and promised king? Well, we see finally in our last point, God blesses the king by bringing peace from the second part of verse 24 through 34. Look at verse 24, the second part in verse 25, which says, And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. There is no doubt this was an incredible time for Israel under Solomon's reign. But again, will his kingdom last? Will his kingdom last? The answer we know is no. But let me give you the point of the passage. King Solomon was God's chosen king who brought power and prosperity and peace by God's wisdom granted to him. But simply, again and again, I'll repeat, Solomon was not the obedient king. Which is ironic, because Solomon had one wish, that he would have a listening heart. Yet what we see in these next verses continue to give us suspicion that no amount of wisdom can prevent a sinful human heart from obeying God's word entirely. Solomon loved God, 
But he also loved other things. We'll get to learn about his love for foreign women later in these chapters. But we'll learn from today's passage that Solomon was also a lover of steeds. He loved horses. Look at verses 26 through 28. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. Now you may be asking, what's wrong with loving horses? Our dear sister Vicky loves horses, works with horses. Horses are fine to love, so what's wrong with it? Except Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, gave clear warnings for kings of Israel about loving horses. So turn with me quickly to page 161 in your blue Bibles. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, and I'm almost done. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, page 161. It says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord had said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not require many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, neither to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now turn it back to 1 Kings 2.83. You see, the issue with Solomon is not that he loved horses. It's that he loved horses more than he loved God. He loved the horses more than he loved God. We will know later also that Solomon does not heed God's warnings about acquiring many wives as well. Many is not even the way to describe the number of wives that Solomon would require for himself. And not only wives, many, many hundreds of concubines. Listen, verses 29 through 34 tells us how awesomely great and amazing Solomon was. Look at those verses, 29 through 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Dara, and sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was the ultimate Renaissance man. 
But I think the point of the author is clear. All the wisdom, all the power, all the riches of the world, the most powerful, wisest, richest king in the history of the world cannot save himself or us from the bondage of sin, of pride, of worldly lust, from disobedience at all. Remember God's words in 1 Kings chapter 3.14, If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. The point is this. The fact of the matter is this. Solomon is not the obedient king. Hence, he is not the promised Messiah king whom God would establish his forever kingdom through. Although Solomon's wisdom, justice, governance, and peace that he brings gives us a hint and foreshadows something greater, it all serves a purpose. Again, as I said, it foreshadows and whispers a coming king, the one who is said is wiser and greater than Solomon, who Jesus Christ himself says is here. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, who is not only the wisest of all men, but as 1 Corinthians one twenty four describes, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And 1 Corinthians one thirty says, Because of Him, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption are found in Him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one, as according to 1 Kings 3.15, who came to Jerusalem to offer Himself as the sacrificial offering, distributing His body as a feast for all of his servants. Remember also from the story of the two harlots, the wisdom of God brings the justice of God. Well, in Matthew 10.34, Jesus says, I came to bring a sword to distinguish who are his and who are not. And brothers and sisters, they killed him for it by nailing him on the cross because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice in fulfillment of 1 Kings 3.28. But they didn't know that justice was being served once and for all, did they? When the sword of God struck down God's only begotten Son and all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. This was the only way the dividing wall of hostility between God and man and between man and man would be destroyed once and for all. His death and resurrection was the only way true lasting order could come from the chaos of sinful men and from this fallen world. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given unto me, all dominion of heaven and earth. He is over all and through all and in all. Only by His Spirit. Is true, lasting peace possible for people of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, as many as the sand by the sea. All these people, He is the only way through whom we can truly experience true happiness forevermore. In fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham, Moses, and David. It is only through Jesus Christ the true king of Israel, the chosen nation of God, a forever kingdom be established in fulfillment of God's covenant promise in the new heavens and the new earth, here and now and forevermore. My question for you, brothers and sisters, is Jesus your king? Guests and visitors, is Jesus your king? What kingdom do you belong? Look around the chaos and division and all the wars around you know what? In fact, don't even look around to those things. Look in your heart. The chaos 
and the messiness and the inconsistencies of your own hearts. There is no peace apart from Christ. More importantly, do you have peace that is beyond all understanding when chaos all around and chaos in our minds and our hearts rages on? On that final day when Christ returns, Scripture says every single person will be held accountable to their deeds. And my question for you, will you stand confident that Christ's righteousness covers your unrighteousness? When perfect justice is executed, will it confirm who you are? A child or an enemy? A child or an enemy, which are you? If you're not certain, you're in a good place because the invitation is available to you today to look to Him, to call on Him, repent, which means to turn from trusting in the things of this world, relying on the things of this world, to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and canceled all your sin, all your punishment on your behalf and trust in Jesus as the Lord of your life today and tomorrow and forevermore. If you wish to talk to any of the pastors, we'd be happy to talk to you. We've been praying for you and people of this church have been praying for you. So talk to anyone who's smiling next to you about the hope and certainty and surety we have in the salvation of Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear brothers and sisters of NCBC, do you long for the forever happy and peaceful kingdom of God? How might our longing and our certainty for that homeland shape our lives today? Stop clinging to the things of this world. Are you relying on His wisdom? Do you cling to His words? God has blessed the true promised Messiah King. He is the wise King. He is the just King. He is the governing, reigning, sovereign King. He is the King who brings true peace, lasting peace, forever peace. Let us love Him wholly, wholly this week. And let us encourage one another to do so today and forevermore together as New Covenant Baptist Church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that through this complicating, complex Solomon, you examine our, our own hearts, our unfaithfulness, our oh-so-easily-string hearts and minds. Father, thank you for the reminder that even though our love is not perfect, Father, that in Christ we can persevere. Father, teach us, Lord, to walk single-heartedly toward you, to you. Father, help us to rely on you and not on our own strength. Father, I know for certain that there are brothers and sisters here who are struggling to trust in your word and your promises. Father, help them to simply look upon you. And Father, trust in the promise of Christ that you are with us forever, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to surrender our all to you. We can't do anything. We are weak. We are powerless. We are guilty. But only in you is our sins covered by the bloodshed on the cross. Father, we can rely on you. We can hope in you. We thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray.